The opinions expressed on That's a Foul do not reflect the view of any organization to which the host or guest are affiliated or employed. Hey, welcome back. I've got my good friend Craig Marin in studio today to talk about growing up in Evendale, Ohio, some water polo memories, his military training and deployment to Afghanistan, and a whole lot more. Let's do it. Sports are an integral part of my life, specifically officiating. I've met a lot of interesting people on deck and on the sidelines. From referees to evaluators, coaches to administrators, and players to fans, each one has a story to tell, and that's a foul. It's a place to tell it. Each episode, we'll dive into personal and professional lives to see what they can share to make us all a little better tomorrow. I'm Chad Packer, and this is That's a Foul. Hey, super thankful you were able to join us today. Man, I got to tell you guys, my heart was super full when Craig came over to the house the other day. Sometimes I record these intros after the show. Sometimes I record them before, and this is one of those that I recorded after. Maybe you have one of those friends in your life. It just kind of makes you feel better when you see them, get a chance to shake their hand. You can look them in the eye and tell them how proud you are to call them a friend. Well, Craig's one of those for me. I had the chance to coach Greg when he was in high school, and after college, he returned for one season to serve as an assistant coach before he started his military commitment. So during the production phase of this episode, there was just too much there for me to cut into one episode, so we're going to go ahead and cut this into two. This week, we talked with Craig about growing up, his experiences in ROTC at The Ohio State University. We'll reminisce over some water polo, of course. And then we'll talk about his military training, which eventually led to a deployment to Afghanistan. Quarter one starts right now. Yeah. Great. Great. Craig, welcome. Thanks. Glad to be here. Yeah. Yeah, this is this is good. You know, when I started this, it was it was really I'm gonna get super comfortable here and put my old man slippers on. I'm like Mr. Rogers leaving. <laughs> um Yeah, you know, it was really water polo centric, but then it you know, kind of starts getting into more leadership stuff, you know what I mean? Yeah. I'm not looking for a hundred percent variety on here, but I was thinking, wow, you know, I mean, here you are with your best unique leadership experiences. Not that they're unique to people in the military, but that it's unique to somebody like me who's never served and or maybe even to anybody that's listening, like, oh what that's like, you know, ROTC and and how it all blends together and then this cool thing you're doing with hot chicken takeover, you know, even absent what's what's happening now financially, but I just thought, yeah, you Craig on there. Plus, if we can get you and Dan on, that's an upset. That might be that might be Emmy Award winning. It might be. It might just be for us three more than anything. (laughs) It It is. It kind of makes you wonder, boy. Why? Why don't I? Why don't I just call Craig and say, "Hey, I'm going to head up to Columbus. We're going to go drink a beer somewhere." Why? I don't know. Because it's Tuesday. (laughs) Why? You have something else to do to just catch up with an old friend. You know? Yeah. What a Um, great mechanism. Because I think um, sharing my experiences in the military isn't something I've done particularly well with my family. Okay. So uh, I feel like this is a kind of a comfortable opportunity for me to share that and (laughs) be able to pass it along to them. Got a few new new listeners because of it, I'm sure. Well, yeah. Yeah. So you you mentioned your your family. I have the skeleton thing up here. 
So you grew up in Evendale, Ohio. Yeah. I don't know who listens to the show or where they're from, but you know, Evendale's a a suburb. I mean, it is the definition of of, of suburb. Right? Yes. What, what was that like growing up in in Evendale, or even just like, you know, what do you what do you most remember about growing up in Evendale, and even getting too philosophical, how does that shape thirteenth grade? Which is to say, after high school. Sure. Um, I, Eatondale is a pretty idyllic mm-hmm. suburban neighborhood. Sure. Great neighborhood kids to round up. You'd go knock on people's door. Hey, can so and so come out and play? <laughs> right, right. Um, playing basketball on the the front driveway. We had we had a big woods back behind mm-hmm. my house, so we we're always playing out in the woods, building campfires and building tree houses and doing all the things young boys should do um and having two older brothers we're just constantly yeah getting stitches and (laughs) (laughs) getting hurt and doing stupid things um i think how that affected or (laughs) impacted later in life i think it bred a couple things one was just appreciation for outdoor Mm, and physical activity Um, we didn't play a lot of video games growing up we didn't watch a lot of tv Uh, and so still to this day i don't right i'm terrible at video games because of it (laughs) that's something to be proud of yeah (laughs) Uh, the other thing is my dad was always doing projects around the house sure I sure. feel like he's remodeled every room in the house two times over nice. at this point. And just kind of that spirit of tinkering or yeah. fixing things uh, was really definitely passed down to me as well. Nice. How'd you get into water polo? You mentioned, I know I have two older brothers and, and both of them, you know, involved in athletics, but not, I mean, I know your older brother played goalie for water polo that's just because he's incredibly tall and and athletically gifted but it wasn't like he jumped out into the field too too much not that he couldn't have but you get my point right um so we all grew up swimming just the rec league swim team uh but we all played team sports as well i don't think any of us really had an incredible passion for swimming sure Uh, i certainly didn't so as I got into high school, it just kind of felt like a great opportunity to bring those two worlds together. Nice. Um, could do something that was strategic, could do something that was team oriented. Yeah. Um, and I was like competent swimmer. Sure. <laughs> I'll say that much. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So our, our relationship began when I was, when I started coaching Princeton, right? What were you a, I was a sophomore. You were a sophomore. Okay. Yep. Um, and then, you know, as we, as we went through, we were we we finished first at regionals two years in a row. Yeah, right. Your your junior and senior year, yep. right? Uh, my s- sophomore and junior year. Oh, did we? Yeah. Okay. So when I say we finished first, the old joke is your junior year we won it, so yeah. we finished first. But then your senior, we were the first team eliminated, so <laughs> yes. we were finished first. <laughs> oh, okay. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> junior joke. and senior. Yeah, we year, finished yeah. first two years in a row. Yeah, <laughs> we were finished. <laughs> um, yeah, that was that was a. That was a good time. There were there were some there were some good guys on on both of those teams. Um, yeah, it's 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 kind of weird when you think about you know like how you how it was like one of the games that I remember most of the hundreds of games that I coached was your junior year when we when we uh, we won regionals. That was right? so much fun. I I can distinct. I don't know if you remember this. I can distinctly remember you know at Mason. So there's that 
the stands side, and everybody was. It felt like everybody was there from Princeton. Yeah, to, we to had watch a, us, like know. a legit student section. Yeah, I don't know how we made that happen. Yeah, and uh, I can remember with about I got twenty or thirty seconds left. You know, we had we had it in the bag or whatever. And I remember you got out like right in front of the in front of the table and took like you know three or four steps towards our bench at that non diving well end. Yeah, and I remember you were like doing one of these, raising your hands and getting yeah. the crowd all up. Like, oh, look at my arm hair stand up. It was great. I remember that. Yeah, I always remember you were you were an incredibly fierce competitor. Like you were a competitor, not violent, not over the line, but you were like fierce, determined. Like, yeah, I don't know where that comes from, um, but I just loved competing. Yeah, yeah. especially close games. I mean, we had kind of that two year rivalry with Milford, sure, where they kind of got the better of us mm-hmm. my sophomore year, and then junior year we, I feel like the tables kind of turned sure. um but those games where i had a lot of respect for that milford team just those games where you know the teams are bringing out the best of each mm-hmm. other are so much fun and uh that was kind of the culmination of that yeah um and i also preferred i was always kind of a defensive minded player sure. and i i think there's a different mindset versus a defensive player and offensive player and how they approach the game uh and it's just I feel like on defense you're constantly reacting to or, sure. or in response to whatever the offense is doing so you're at a disadvantage because of it huh. and hmm. leaning into that disadvantage is something that I really enjoyed like I know I'm at a disadvantage and I'm still going to beat you anyway nice kind of mindset Sure. Yeah. You know, it's funny as you say that. I, I knew you were a center defender. Um, and that was, you know, you as a coach, obviously you're at that defensive end. You know, actually coach with this. Yeah, how, how much you're you're watching that center defender and ball swings to the four or five side or the right side of the offense. We, we, we would say um, then, now we talk four or five side. And, you know, you would say, get around, get around. I mean, you're just constantly coaching that person, but very much in the way that I see uh, wrestling coaches. Yeah. You know, you're, the rest of the, the guys, gals, whomever, uh, out on the perimeter, counting them to to help and press in and kind of react a little bit, but ultimately you are coaching that wrestling match at the center. And to your point, you know, you are constantly reacting to where the ball is, yeah. as is the center forward. Right. right. So there is that kind of that that one on one within the game. You yeah. know what I mean? If that if that makes some sense. Yeah, and I, I those I mean, Ohio water polo was not a very big sport at the sure. time. Um so you, you developed those rivalries between the center defenders and yeah. the center center <laughs> right. players. Right. Um, but I always felt it was kind of a mutual sure. respect thing. Like you've got a job to do, I've got a job to do. Right. We're gonna battle it out for four quarters yeah and it's kind of nice when you get into those relationships where i coach some players who would throw the knee into the kidney or you know do some of that i don't ever remember having to coach you out of doing that it was more of a physical strength yeah agility again just natural athleticism i think you're probably one of the more athletic players that you had the opportunity privilege to coach yeah, uh, I can thanks. think of a few other center defenders, but most of them, most of them fall into center defenders. Really, you know, as far as the athleticism goes, because it is so reactionary, and there's so much going on with the, you know, where your hips are, and yeah, you know, with the the um, 
the leverage you, know, you might get with a hand on the lat and stuff like that. Yeah, you know, just that that type of stuff. But you also have to be mentally, you have to be mentally smart about it. You know, you get you get an exclusion early. Okay, I only, yeah, you only a... got you only got one more before we're in deep crap, so yeah. you can't you can't get one down there. <laughs> and there's like um, beyond the kind of individual battle that you go on with that goes on between you and the um the offensive player there's understanding of kind of the broader strategy within the six players too Hmm. so you can't just be locked in on your player you have to kind of keep tabs on everything that's going around you too yeah and i think that's that where that team sport background really sure really helps sure after high school you go to ohio state and you do the, the ROTC thing. So I went up to Ohio State and joined the Army ROTC program there. It was a, a pretty intensive program, and I really leaned into that. And so I tried to do that and the club water polo team. Oh, And it just oh, yeah. wasn't feasible for me. Sure. And uh, the Army ROTC program, I was... I had never done any sort of endurance running. Okay. Uh, so it was the first two years, I kind of just like got my butt kicked. <laughs> and uh, so it took me a couple of years to physically adapt to, you know, timed five mile runs, timed two mile oh runs. God. And I, I, I couldn't hack that and water polo. Um, hmm. But the program itself at Ohio State, I think Ohio State is, has a really sound program, or at least it did at the time. Sure. Great. You, they bring in active duty officers and uh, NCOs to be the instructors of those courses. Um, and still to this day, some of them uh, continue to be mentor and be people I look up to. Oh, wow. So Good deal. Um, really built some really formative relationships with my cadre and instructors. Uh, at the same time, I had a really close class of ROTC people. Okay. So, um, there were six or seven of us, seven of us that were incredibly close. Uh, we did all this summer training together, going off to different schools, optional schools, and um, we all went off into active duty army uh, training at the same time together. So we okay. got to go through nice. kind of a six month, well nine month training pipeline together. Okay, um, and those relationships, I mean, those are some of my best friends. That's cool. To stay, so. That's neat. I don't know that I even knew you were considering ROTC when you were in high school. Maybe it was something you were considering, and maybe we talked about it, but I don't I don't ever remember. I will tell you, I don't remember being surprised, but I don't remember, remember you being like, you know, as a freshman, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm going to go do that. Yeah, I don't. I think it's something in high school I had in the back of my mind. I didn't come from a military family. I didn't no. know anything about it. Right. Uh, and then I went up to Ohio State for orientation and I went to this kind of information session at the RTC was hosting uh-huh. and uh, just enrolled in the class and you could enroll in the class without any sort of contractual obligation. Okay. So the first half of the year I was just taking the class and trying to understand what it was all about and I kind of fell in love wow. and signed up after that. That's cool. That's cool. I yeah, I I was reading, um, I, I was looking for a picture of, of you to show my mom, uh, cause she's, she was trying to remember which, which, which one you were, you mm-hmm. know? uh, and, uh, 
I came across an article in the Columbus Dispatch that talked about just kind of your, your history and where, where you're, what you, so you, you did philosophy. Yeah. yeah. Which is uh, maybe, maybe, maybe that is a vehicle to graduate, you know, or maybe it was like, you know, really how does, I mean, philosophy majors are generally deep thinkers. Yeah. So I felt like I structured everything within the college experience around my time in the army. Okay. Um, so I was very specific and intentional about that. Uh, philosophy appealed for a couple of reasons. One, I just really enjoyed it. Two, I was thinking about going to law school. Sure. And philosophy is a great pre-law degree. But three, there is this um, part of philosophy is just being able to weigh really uh, complex and difficult arguments against each other and be able to come up with your own opinion on what the right hmm. answer is. Um and I thought that would be a useful skill for decision making within like the military framework. Sure. So, um, and then there was some unintended consequences that I didn't realize at the time, but re- learning how to read really dense text sure. has proved to be a useful school skill. Yeah. Uh, learning how to write and write succinctly, how, learning how to create and structure arguments uh, mm. have all been skills that I've carried you know, throughout my professional career. Is there a philosopher that speaks to you or maybe a branch of philosophy? Is there such a thing? I don't. Yeah. Um, so when I was younger and like actually in college, I really like existential philosophy, uh, but it's kind of a dour, cynic, cynical. <laughs> y- y- it's a phase I feel like a lot of young people go through in <laughs> philosophy. <laughs> um, uh, and I'm more like humanistic now. Okay. Um, it's a little more optimistic about human race i guess what it, well, i don't even know what that what, i don't know what that means what do you mean humanistic like what is that um people like um oh like victor frankel who wrote um man's search for meaning okay um who i think more appropriately assigns meaning to people's lives than a lot of the existential thinkers who who would like claim that um life is more absurd and and doesn't have any inherent meaning to it oh wow okay yeah that sounds that sounds like a college a college kid yeah yeah i get your point i get your point okay that's interesting i have to maybe i have to take a look at that i talk about waxing philosophic or whatever but i don't know that i'm actually i'm probably bastardizing the word a little bit i'm probably not actually in philosophizing i'm thinking and maybe thinking and philosophy are tangentially related but to your point about the definition of taking both sides of an argument and coming up with being able to Butt them up against each other. Yeah, am I? I mean, am I? Am I tracking? Yep. Okay. And I, I think it's a very practical skill that has served me well in recent, in the recent last few months because of how kind of like politically tense things seem to be, yeah. and being able to navigate those conversations um, and kind of approach it from the lens of um, seeking understanding of mm. people's perspective rather than trying to project my understanding of the situation over top of them. Man, that's a good approach. We talk about seeking to understand before being understood, right? Correct. Or even a phrase I use sometimes, you know, when people wait for their turn to talk Mm -hmm. instead of actually reacting to that, which was said before them and continuing the conversation, the other one becomes, but that's that's a good point about projecting versus really understanding. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's like, uh, I feel like a lot of these conversations that go off the rails um, come from a place of trying to have that gotcha moment. Sure, sure. 
and it's one even if your intention is to convince somebody that their position is wrong it's not a very effective way to do it right <laughs> it's not it's not so i, huh. I just assume good intentions of the other person and um, seek to understand i think the goal is to kind of restate their position back to them and have them say yes or that's okay. right and and put the onus of understanding on yourself so wow. like uh, let me see if i get this if i got this right let me i want to make sure i'm understanding this and it immediately just changes the tone of the conversation completely so you get you get your assignment and i remember uh maybe bleeding into the whole uh how you how we spending your coaching together or a season coaching together. But I, I remember you saying, I didn't want my first, is it assignment deployment or whatever to be recruitment or whatever? Um, not recruitment. Uh, yeah. Like as a recruiter, like you said, I want my first assignment to be with like leading, leading a team of. Yeah. So, um, after you graduate, you get, uh, a date where you have to report to, um, whatever base you're going to be assigned to for training and you go through an uh, officer basic training course. Okay. Um, I had a long gap between graduation and when I reported. I think I graduated in June 2011 and I didn't report until March of 2012. Okay. So I could have um, spent that time working as a recruiter at Ohio State. Right. Um, and I didn't one I Recruiting itself didn't appeal to me. Um, and two, I didn't think I was going to be doing the Army for a career. Okay. So I had a four-year contract. I ended up serving for five. But um, if I would have served six months as a recruiter or right. nine months as a recruiter, this is nine months out of my four-year yes. obligation that was spent doing something I didn't want to do. Right. So I just didn't feel like a useful way to spend my time and it gave me the opportunity to come down to Cincinnati and coach. Uh -huh. Yeah. You probably remember, you probably remember this. Um, I can't remember like it was yesterday. And it, what, what was it? 11 or 12? When, when would it have been? What season? Fall of 11. Fall, fall of 11. And we had the, uh, the parent meeting maybe, I think it might've been with yeah. the, you know, where the athletic director talks at and the it's, gym, a, yeah. it's a thing or whatever. And Dan and I were sitting at the back you walked in, you had that, you had that big beard of us. Like, beard. oh my God, that was the coolest. <laughs> and I remember you came in those doors. Dude, I, I, I can just remember, I keep, I know I keep repeating myself, but I remember just like this sense of joy in my heart. I was like, oh, it's my boy. Yeah. <laughs> and you were, I remember you had this, you had a big smile on your face too. You know, like yeah. you were like, yeah, this is it, man. I'm, yeah, I'm happy to be here or whatever. So many good memories at, at Princeton High School. You know? Yeah. And so, um, yeah, so we spent that entire year, you know, coaching together and I, you know, we, had some some deep conversations but we i mean we had just a shit ton of fun lots of fun i i was so you you did all the dry land and our dudes looked fierce from doing because you did all the all the all the the physical you know pt yeah. from from your from your time in yeah in rotc or whatever maybe even the officer training or whatever but man those guys looked they looked amazing so that was, that was, and that, that was a nice thing. We kind of delineated roles, you know, like, all right, I'm going to kind of do this. Craig, you're kind of do that. Dan, you kind of do that. And then we're all just help each other yeah. with the other stuff, you know? So what, what, what do you remember about coaching or what, what can you lend to the coaching conversation that made you a better person, made you a better leader? You felt like you really contributed to. 
Well, I think it opened my eyes to um, how difficult that transition is between player and coach. Mm. Because while I could, I felt confident doing that dry land activities and all that physical uh, fitness aspect because I had four years of expertise in leading other cadets in the ROTC program through similar training plans. I felt pretty, I had a lack of confidence when it came to like the actual water polo stuff. Sure. Um, like I remember, um, there was a timeout I think you had went to talk to officials and I, I was left having to have that conversation with the team. And I'm just like, Oh, I'm a fish out of water here. Like I don't, <laughs> I'm way over my head. I don't know. Sure. And I was, so that was a really important perspective. Um, and makes me miss the fact that I didn't have the opportunity to come back a few years in a row sure. to get better at that skill. Yeah. Yeah. I think maybe in March, that's when your, your, your clock started, if that makes sense to yep. your five-year commitment, I think, or yep. four-year commitment. Yep. So where, where do you go from there? And I just, full disclosure, bro, if, if we go down something, you're like, man, I don't know, I don't, I'm still not ready to talk about that. I please. No, no, no. Please, please say that. Cause I, I want to ask about, you know, your time, Across in, in Afghanistan, but also want to talk about maybe a little bit about you know some of your serve your old guard sure. thing mostly selfishly because that fascinates me. But again, that's that thing where I don't know if I'm ever going to talk to anybody else that had a military funeral where they had to present a flag to a, a family on behalf of a grateful nation or whatever. So. Yeah, um, well, I ask whatever questions okay. you want. Sure, um, that's fair. Uh, I'm going to cry too. There, there. <laughs> My experience is that there's a lot of people that are curious about my service that don't know how to ask those questions. I am totally open to answering them. I don't know how to bring it up on its own. Sure. You know, so yeah, yeah, I'm completely, completely open booked. Um, So yeah, March 2012, I reported down to Fort Benning, Georgia. they called uh, Fort Benning School for Boys. <laughs> <laughs> At the time, yeah, I was an infantry officer. Uh, the infantry schoolhouse was based out of Fort Benning. Uh, at the time, it was not the infantry was not gender integrated. It has since been okay. gender integrated. So I w- went through that training pipeline with a bunch of twenty-two-year-old kids. Uh-huh. Um, you spent uh, four months going through a course called the Infantry Officer Basic Course which is just kind of a capstone to the training that you got in ROTC. Okay. Um, and it was very specific towards the infantry. So leading a platoon, uh, platoon level tactics, uh, weapons functions, uh, marksmanship training, all the basic infantry skills. Okay. After that, you're kind of are in this holding pattern until you get a slot to go to ranger school. Okay. Um, I went to ranger school sometime that summer of 2012 and ranger school is a really tough leadership training program basically uh the design it's all based they use infantry tactics as a mechanism to test individuals ability to lead their fellow soldiers in stressful difficult situations okay Uh, the way they ratchet up the stress because there's no real way to replicate the stress of combat the way they do that is by limiting your sleep and limiting your food intake. Okay. The idea is that if you can lead your peers in 
these when everyone's cold, wet, tired, and hungry, um, <laughs> then you're b- better prepared to lead sure. soldiers in combat later on. So there's three phases of that um, school. First one's at Fort Benning. The next one is mountain phase. They go up into northern Georgia, right along the Appalachian Trail, okay. and you do some mountaineering, and then um, you'll do a bunch of training operations through the mountains of Georgia. And then the last phase is uh, in the swamps in Florida, right along the coast. Each phase is kind of its own standalone little sure. course. Okay. And um, you can recycle yeah. each phase. And you can recycle a lot of phases. I mean, there's guys that spend six to nine months okay. at, at Ranger School, which is, sounds like a nightmare. Uh, <laughs> I recycled the last phase. Okay. I think this is the story... That I probably told you, they put you into a platoon of soldiers, and that every day, different people are assigned to leadership positions within okay. that platoon. Okay, and you're evaluated while you're in leadership positions, and it's a pass/fail system. You have to pass a certain number of patrols, and uh, or else you get recycled. And so, on my second time, no, on my first time through the last phase, Florida phase. Um, I just totally shit the bed on a patrol. Just did terrible. And the next morning after you get subbed out of leadership, uh, the ranger instructor has like a little one-on-one coaching session. Okay. He says like, how do you think you did? And everyone wants to pass. Right. Sure. <laughs> so everyone usually sings their own praises in those sessions. I got in there and I just know, I knew I did terrible. And I was like, well, I did this wrong. I did this wrong. This was a bad decision. I don't, I don't know why I did this. And the RI, the ranger instructor was just like, you are the first (laughs) student that ever admitted the things they did wrong to me. Um, and I told him like, Hey, Sergeant, um, Theoretically, in a few months or a few weeks, I could be leading a platoon. Like, I need to be better than this. Like, sure. I can't be making these mistakes right. if I'm going to be leading a platoon in a few weeks. And he just kind of reassured me. He said, he, you know, you're not making any mistakes that any other person isn't. Good. But I'm, I'm confident that that conversation impacted how the ranger instructors graded me my second time through. Oh. Uh, like, I think they saw, not that they gave me any leeway or anything, but they appreciated sure. how carefully I took that opportunity. Also, my second phase through, I kind of changed some things from a, with a mindset okay. s- standpoint. So after ranger school, then you, you I, I want to go back to that article you mentioned about... Um, uh, parachuting, you know, and parachuting, that's what the, the suburban dads call it, parachuting <laughs> in the Valley God. But we, we were up at uh, Middletown Airport up there where they do a lot of, a lot of parachuting. There's yeah. a, there's a, a, it's called a jump school. I don't know what that is. But, um, and I was reading the article and I thought about, you know, like you mentioned like the night parachute and what that, I can't even imagine what it is like doing that and then potentially doing it in a combat situation, I guess. Yeah. Well, the, the funny thing about, you know, airborne kind of has this history behind it and a legacy and reputation. Sure. Uh, in today's modern, like 
modern wars it's pretty much obsolete (laughs) so i think they did one combat jump into iraq combat jump i'll use that term loosely uh where they basically jumped into an airfield that had already been seized okay uh no jumps into afghanistan i don't think wow uh sure so it's it's just not a particularly relevant sure skill set anymore interesting (laughs) So I, I never really thought like, oh, crap, I could be jumping into combat one day. <laughs> right. Right. Um, but, you know, I think the big difference between military jump and civilian jumping is the uh, you're not skydiving. Skydiving. That's what you I was know, you're not. There's not a free fall. You're static line jumping out of a you know military aircraft, which means you have a line that connects to your parachute. Okay. That connects to a wire in the in the airplane. So when you jump, you get like three thousand or three seconds of free fall before your canopy should be open. Sure. And if it's not open, you pull your reserve. Okay. So um, yeah. <laughs> it's very different. You're jumping at you know a thousand feet versus like sixteen thousand sure. feet or something sure. that skydivers do. Yeah. So a very different experience. But the complex part is that you're sharing the air with the goal of an airborne operations get as many people on the ground as quickly as possible. Okay. So you have, you know, 20 other people you're sharing the sky with. And when you're, you have these huge canopies open, it can get a little tricky floating in the air with um, people underneath you wow, like stealing, yeah. stealing your air. You're, oh, wow. You're dropping. Yeah. And that's where injuries become a factor. Yeah. You mentioned, uh, you know, like the first time you do it, you're like, shit, yeah, this is awesome, dude. And then by the end, you, you realize all the things that can go wrong. You yes. Know, it's- <laughs> the first one is definitely the easiest. <laughs> it, it, that was my best jump. Everyone after that was just very aware of the how I could get hurt and made it far more stressful. Yeah. But the first one was great. <laughs> hey, keep that in mind. I'll do it once. Yeah. And then after that, yeah. And yeah, that's funny. So what, what's the, I'm curious then, what, what is the value and still, is there, is, is it the mystique? Is that the tradition? Is it? Yeah, like, I think it, it would, it's a certainly a relevant skill set if we were ever to get into a more conventional conflict. The goal on airborne operations as they're designed today is that you would jump into an airfield, create security, secure that airfield so that you could land aircraft and helicopters and uh, start establishing uh, a U.S. presence in on that airfield. Okay, so it's a relevant skill if we were able to get into a conventional fight. Uh, but I knew we weren't fighting conventional fights during during the time that I served. Gotcha. So. All right. As we move into the second part of our conversation with Craig this week, he takes us to Fort Polk, Louisiana, and then to his deployment in Afghanistan. And he ends with a few thoughts about what it's like to come home after a deployment. So you get done with training, we'll yeah. call it, just generically lump it into that silo. And then all of a sudden you are you are leading that platoon, which yeah. is a, a size of a platoon is... It depends on the structure of the unit, but um, anywhere from 20 to 40 soldiers. Okay. And those are like into squads? Yeah. So each platoon has four squads. Okay. Uh, I was uh, in a... A typical rifle company so we had three rifle squads nine man rifle squads and uh one heavy weapon squad okay uh, i had two machine gun teams in it okay when i got to that my company they were show 
short on their manning that they had only two platoons. And I got there and was responsible for standing up the third platoon. Okay. Um, so I got there and we had maybe like 15 soldiers, maybe two other sergeants. So very short staffed. And typically a new platoon leader is coming into an existing platoon. Okay. And you'll be in that position leading that platoon for 12 to 24 months, depending on how things go. Uh, I had a very unique situation where very early on, I was one of the more tenured guys within that platoon. Sure. Uh, sure. And so it felt like I had a lot more credibility with my guys as okay. new soldiers started arriving and started dressing sure. up because we built that platoon from 15 or something to 42 wow. or something like that. That's cool. Yeah. Where is that and what is that leading to? In, yeah, so I was stationed you know. at Fort Polk, Louisiana. Okay. Um, at the time that I showed up there, they had just kind of gone, th- gotten home from a deployment maybe a year, a year and a half before that, gone through kind of the reset, and we're starting to ramp up training again to get ready for another deployment. Okay. And so the deployment is where you're going over quote-unquote overseas yeah yeah deploying to we knew we were more than likely going to afghanistan at at the time that i showed up and then as the year went on you kind of got more information about what we're where we're going what we're doing okay what is tactics in 2013 versus tactics in 1865 i mean what are the i I mean honestly the the same basic principles apply okay everything is just a lot smaller now okay. oh you, you can operate you know, much more independently and you have a lot more clarity on what's going around you just because of technology sure but it's blocking and tackling essentially um you know you have an element that is trying to fix the enemy in a specific location and then you have another element that's maneuvering to assault onto that oh okay um so yeah. very hmm. simple blocking and tackling what makes it hard is um the complexity of the environment yeah I'd never heard it put that simplistically, but that it, it's obviously incredibly complex within that simplistic structure. But the idea of just blocking and tackling you, so you're gonna wow. And there you go. Thanks. All right. Well, I don't need anything else. Thanks for coming <laughs> in. Today. You go to Afghanistan with this platoon? Mostly? No, I I, I wish um, that platoon got really good. We had an incredible group of leaders um, that just by happenstance happened to get assigned to that platoon okay um and uh at the time that we were deploying so this would have been fall of 2013 they were really starting to draw down numbers in afghanistan and and the mission set transitioned from a more uh direct combat situation to an advisory yes okay so they were taking smaller teams uh to go over and work alongside the ana the afghan national army my company didn't actually deploy and then the rest of the battalion went ahead to deploy it. about three months into that deployment one of the advisors that was working on the in afghanistan was wounded and sent home and i got plucked from my platoon leader position to fill that vacancy okay and so you get to afghanistan mm-hmm. and you do you go straight to a forward operating base or do you kind of hang out at the Hang out. I mean, disrespectfully, but are you just are you kind of back? No, you you do kind of hang out. Okay. Um, so I got there, 
I landed at Bagram Airfield, which is huge, like a huge okay. army base. And um, my unit was based in uh, a FOB in Capiza province, which is a few hours drive east of Bagram. And I had to kind of hang out. I stayed in this huge tent with me and like two other soldiers with probably a hundred bunk beds <laughs> and we just waited until we could get a some catch a flight out to Capiza wow so it was like three days or something like that okay we, so we did kind of just hang out <laughs> so when you got to your forward operating base what were you going to be is it is it fob can I say that as a civilian yeah. can I say yeah. fob when you get to your Fob, do you know what you're going to be doing? I'm asking because in that three days, are you waiting to just like, are you waiting to, what sort of anxiety are you feeling? Or are you, are you going to a place where you know, okay, when I go there, it's going to be relatively safe, whatever safe is in, in, a, in a combat area of it. Yeah, so I knew, I knew our unit, I didn't know a lot about day to day what, what I was going to be doing or what that would look like. I knew that, the base that my battalion that was at was relatively safe. Okay. There was some anxiety, like, well, what is, what's that going to look like? But I knew everyone in that battalion. I, I worked alongside of them already. Okay. So I was anxious to get out there just to okay. see some people I recognize. Right. When I was at Bagram, I, there's hundreds, thousands of people just walking around. I don't know anybody. The two soldiers I was with, I didn't know. And I was just anxious to... Yeah see some guys I knew yeah how long were you there at that it deployed totally at, at that the the forward operating base you were you were going to, I feel like a fraud saying fob um you can say fob. okay I, I'm, I'm gonna work on it yeah um when you were there how, how long were you at that fob? not not very long so we were at fob de gob in Capiza province like I said we we're in the midst of reducing American presence in Afghanistan. Okay. So we, shortly after I got there, we turned that FOB over. It was a shared FOB with us and the Afghan National Army. Okay. We turned it over completely to them. Okay. And we moved back to Bagram and spent the last few months doing operations out of Bagram. Okay. So when you're in that area and you're, you're coaching, mentoring, advising, is probably the word, mm -hmm. uh, what do you do? do like what are you doing that's just i mean that's just so foreign to me yeah so a lot of it was through the planning process okay so we know that let's say this river valley and all all the in afghanistan all the like, people live in the river on the river valleys because the mountains are so steep sure um so we know this like river valley has a lot of insurgent activity in it we need to do some sort of operation to clear and hold that piece of terrain okay um so we're working with the ana to plan that operation determine what uh, assets we have available to us determine kind of lines of responsibility between the united states soldiers and okay. the afghan soldiers and planning the operation in preparation for whenever it happens once that operation kicks off, you know, the Afghan National Army is in the lead, uh, but they have kind of a control center that follows behind, tracks movement of formations, tracks if there's any sort of casualties, ma managing the, okay. like, evacuation of those casualties, that sort of thing. Uh, so you're working alongside them and kind of being an integrator if there are any U.S. assets that need to be leveraged. Okay. Where does the stress come from? The PTSD and just the, the things that people see, like, where does that come from? Does it come from that Tuesday afternoon when you did a 
a small operation that went sideways that you saw something that has scarred you. I don't, I don't understand where that, or is it just that constant stress or? I think it's different for different people. So I was fortunate to not have PTSD. I think I have a lot of friends that struggle mightily with it Okay, and it's really debilitating. Um, or it can be. Um, and I think there's a couple different sources of it. Some of, sometimes it's that constant threat aspect sure. where, uh, you're just always on guard and you maintain this high level of awareness. And then when you get home, it can be difficult to turn that off. Yeah. Um, I think most people that come home don't turn it off immediately. Okay. I didn't. Sure. And after a few months, you you are able to flip that switch and go back. People that suffer from PTSD aren't able to, that switch doesn't flip off. Wow. So it just maintains. And that's where the struggles come in. Yeah. Um, so it's that heightened sense of awareness. Um, those really intense, stressful situations can do the same thing. Um, okay. You know, whether it's a you know mission that goes wrong or uh, handling really bad casualties. I think seeing the human yeah. form disrupted sure. is really difficult. Yeah. So I think combining all those together is a, not a great recipe. No. When you're there and something goes sideways and, and, a, and a U.S. soldier loses his life or her life, how do you find out about it? And does word pass through or is there, you know, I, it's, it's incredibly silly to say, but I mean, is there some sort of a running running list where people are checking to see who who unfortunately passed away today i mean i don't yeah, i don't my unit was really fortunate we didn't have any people killed while we were on deployment. Okay. we had a couple guys that were wounded the way if you're out doing an operation you're you have to call it you have a tactical operations center back in the rear on on the fob that you're re- sending reports to okay. as they kind of track the battle okay and you would call up a report, a specific report um, indicating that you need a medical evacuation and you describe like the nature of those wounds, the nature of uh, the people that need to be evacuated. And at some point you'll call up the battle roster number of somebody. Oh, so it's usually uh, like an alphanumeric combination. Okay. And that's usually if you're monitoring the radio is how you kind of figure out what's going on. Okay. And then when that happens, Let's go back to that squad component mm-hmm. or the platoon mm-hmm. or the company. Like at what level does that, does that group get a, like a day to, to catch their breath or do you, do you now, nah, man, we got it. We got to keep, you know, we got it. We got to keep taking the fight to the enemy. I mean, how does that? Yeah. I think it, it depends a lot on, I've seen both. Okay. I've seen units get right back out there. Right. And I've seen units take some time off. I think it depends on like how serious okay. the injuries or or the seriousness of the person that was wounded. Like if a senior leader within the element is wounded, and now you have to kind of do next man up sure. drill, and you're moving people around into sure. new positions. They might take a few days to kind of get back and understand the restructuring of the organization. Okay, so. That's it's a wide variety. Yeah, yeah. I was just wondering how that, how that hit. You know, I, uh, I've read uh, the Sebastian Younger mm-hmm. book. I think it's War. Mm-hmm. Is that what it is? 
and then the uh, Crack Hour book, you know, where men find glory. The yeah. I think it's specific to the Pat Tillman story, I think, or whatever. Yeah. And yeah, you read about the forward operating bases and just the camaraderie. And there might even be. Now, I think the younger thing was made into a, a, a documentary. Yeah, it's an uh, incredible documentary. Yeah, is that? I mean, is that is that true to true to? I mean, they were at big time, just remote. Yes. And it was it wasn't it named after one of the men one that was killed. Soldiers that were killed in that year. Yeah. Yeah. Um I'm trying to remember what it was. Um Restrepo. Yes, that's it. Uh so as I mentioned before that we're kind of turning that those smaller bases over okay. uh to Afghans and then centralizing US forces on the the bigger fobs. Two years before I got there, 2010, 2011, and all the years leading up to that, that was very much the case. You had small, you know, company size elements, which is like less than 200 soldiers occupying some some base together. And then they would often have uh, observation posts sure. outlawed from that uh, initial base. So you had you would have 20 guys clinging onto uh, the side of a mountaintop. Yeah. Uh, some operation or some observation post and they would live there and you wouldn't have it would be like no electricity you know it's like spartan living yeah so that's a very very honest depiction of those experiences yeah are there are there a lot of honest depictions of i don't, I don't even know I, yeah i think so i read both of those books that you mentioned where when men win glory you know kind of delved into some of the more political sure parts uh, which i'm not, at the levels that i served in you are pretty irrelevant okay i like, just don't care right like, your bubble's really small sure war was a, a a great book i thought it was a little um kind of grandiose about okay. the experience yeah. sure. a little bit but i i really appreciated kind of the individual nuance mm-hmm. of that book there's another one the fighters by cj chivers mm-hmm. i think know. that's probably the best book that I've read and he kind of follows a series of like eight or 10 different stories across Afghanistan and Iraq. Interesting. Okay. All right. Check that one out. So then you leave Afghanistan and you come back to, I come back to Fort Polk, Louisiana, um, stay within the same battalion, which was very helpful. I served there for another year. It's interesting because I will always say that getting out of the army was far more difficult than coming home from deployment. And I think it's because you get home from deployment, um, you're around the guys that you served with. There's this level of understanding that's really inherent and that's really beneficial. When you get out, the overwhelming feeling is isolation. Like nobody, how, how do I, how do I communicate this experience? I don't even know how to make sense of it on my own. Right. So you just, you, it feels like no one will ever understand. Yeah. Leadership wise, what did you learn from that experience? Leadership wise, it was a pretty interesting experience because I, I didn't have soldiers that reported to me. I wasn't I wasn't a direct supervisor to anybody. I worked with a counterpart within the Afghan National Army who was a company commander there, and he was. I mean, this guy spent his whole life fighting. Wow. <laughs> he fought the Russians in the eighties and. You fought the Taliban after that. Like he ostensibly knows far more yeah. about combat operations than I do, and so to be in a position to try to advise this person was is really complicated, especially because he had tremendous respect from 
the formations that he was responsible for leading. Okay. So the advising was, it had to be far more nuanced. You couldn't go in and direct people or tell people what to do. Not that that's a leadership style that I evoked before that, but you just, you had no authority to your, hmm. to your rank. So you had to really build up credibility Wow. and prove that you're legit and that you care about their well-being as well. Sure. And, and then you can start kind of the coaching process after that. Hmm. So I'm going to guess that's where a little bit of that philosophy or understanding what's the, the battle to fight or it, it, we, we use this very, very unfairly and probably loosely, but you decide what, what hills to die on and which ones oh, yeah. not to just in the communication side, let alone the actual hill. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. You, you definitely had to make some concessions and some of the concessions you make, the other side ends up being right, you know? Oh, yeah. So uh, you think, ah, oh, well, I'm going to take this risk by allowing them to do X, Y, or Z, and then X, Y, or Z ends up working out better. So that's a learning experience okay. in and of itself. Sure. But, yeah, there would definitely come times where there would be kind of non-negotiables. You okay. Know, like we, this has to happen. And no understanding what your non-negotiables are before mm you have those conversations is most important. So otherwise the non-negotiables become everything. Yes. Yes. I think, you know, you're asking about PTSD before. I think one of the reasons it can be so difficult for people is that a lot of times within combat, there is no right answer or the right answer feels equally as bad. Right. <sighs> and that chews away at people and eats away at people. Yeah. I think, yeah, we've come a long way in terms of understanding mental health impacts, but one of the things with kind of the modern wars is that they're, you don't feel the impact as a civilian. It doesn't affect mm -hmm. the broader community as long as like, you know, it's some 40, some service members are going to die in the Middle East this year and the wars will just continue churning along and mm. deployments will still keep happening and it doesn't affect anyone. Mm. And that was kind of one of the jarring aspects of coming home from deployment. You know, you just, I got off the plane in Alexandria, Louisiana and it, right next to this highway. And it's just like evening commute, wow. you know, like another Wednesday or whatever. <laughs> right. right. Like, well, what was all that for? <laughs> Wow. Certainly today, I'm not that optimistic about our efforts in Afghanistan. I don't know when that optimism stopped, but I think it was either in deployment or sometime shortly before deployment. Um, and at that point, you really can only take comfort in how you served alongside of the individuals mm. that you were assigned with. But I think trying to take comfort in what our broader efforts are is um, pretty difficult. Yeah. I'm not exactly sure how to transition at this point. I know Craig's experiences are not unique to him, but they are his. After we stopped taping the show, we sat out back and we talked for about another hour. Uh, I'm, I'm sure you can tell Craig is a man of deep introspection and he chooses his words thoughtfully. Next week, we're going to talk a little bit more about his time after 
his deployment. And then we're going to talk a little bit about his experiences with Hot Chicken Takeover, which provides uh, supportive jobs to men and women who need a fair chance at work. If you like what you heard on today's show and what we're trying to do by telling stories of seemingly ordinary people who have extraordinary impacts on those around them, do me a favor and tell someone about our show. I believe firmly in the power of momentum, and even if it's just a handful of us, we can all make a difference. Till next time, y'all, be good to the rest.